the Joe Rogan experience. The 2017 New York Times article, uh, in my mind, made uh, that was a big shift because when the New York Times is reporting about it and saying that this is major news and this is real and there's video evidence that they can't ignore when you talk to high-level people at the government and people like Commander David Fravor who had that infamous uh, spotting off of the coast of San Diego, when you hear about people like that that are very reputable, it starts to change the conversation in a lot of people's eyes. Right. See, it used to be that one person would see something in the sky and say, look, Martha, look, there's something up there. Now things have changed. Now we have multiple sightings by multiple modes. That is the gold standard, the gold standard for looking for these objects. Not just one person, but several people that are reputable. Not just radar, but visual sighting, infrared sensors, uh, telescopic evidence. Now we have multiple sightings by multiple modes. And so the burden of proof has shifted. It used to be the burden of proof was on the people who believed in UFOs. They saw something, prove it. Now the burden of proof has shifted to the Pentagon, to the military. Now they have to prove that these aren't extraterrestrial. And so I think there's been a sea change, a sea change in the last uh, just several years. You know, 50 years ago, there was a congressional hearing, and it was coming out of Project Blue Book. And there was a lot of laughter and a lot of jokes about things, little green men in outer space. Fifty years ago, that's the way it was. Now things have changed. Now people are looking at, looking at are they a threat militarily? What kinds of sensors do we have? What kind of metrics do we have? We now have frame by frame an analysis of these objects. These objects travel between Mach 5 and Mach 20. That's 20 times the speed of sound. These objects can zigzag, and we can measure the G-force inside the, this object. The G-forces are several hundred times the force of gravity. In other words, any living person's bones would be crushed by these objects, so they're probably drones of some sort. These objects can drop 70,000 feet in a few seconds. Think about that. It can drop a tremendous distance in just a few seconds, and they can go underwater. This is something that we didn't realize before, but yes, they can actually go underwater. And they also move without creating an exhaust or breaking the sound barrier. So these are things that we can now document frame by frame looking at these videotapes. So for yourself, what was the shift? And how did you feel about UFOs, say, like 10, 15 years ago? Well, there is this giggle factor, and uh, it's the third rail, of course, of your scientific uh, reputation if you believe in these things. But the evidence is accumulating over the last several years. Now, when I was first approached by Carolyn Corey, uh, the producer of this film, A Tear in the Sky, I was skeptical. I said to myself, come on. I mean, five days, five days you're going to look for flying saucers in the sky. What happens if the aliens are camera shy and they don't show up in five days? So I was pleasantly surprised when they actually found something. They actually have photographic evidence of objects that can gyrate just the way the Pentagon has said. And so we now have a sea change. A, a center of gravity has changed with regards to looking at these objects. We no longer simply look at one individual seeing something in the sky. No, we demand hours of videotape, 
multiple sightings by multiple modes, that's the gold standard now. So what do you think is happening? Do you think that this is something that maybe another government from another country has created that far surpasses our abilities? Or do you think that this is coming from somewhere else? Well, the Pentagon has listed, I think, five different options. Uh, One option, of course, is that they're weather balloons or something that's an artifact of our space program. Maybe uh, a piece of rocket uh, that is, is plunging back into the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, that's one category. Another category is anomalous uh, weather events. Uh, they happen, and they have to be looked at very carefully. But the last option, the last option is other. Mm. That is not just the Russians or the Chinese, because these objects apparently can gyrate faster than what the Chinese and the Russians can, can uh, muster. But it opened the door to the possibility of other They didn't specify what other was, but you can fill in the dots yourself. Now, one possibility for other is hypersonic drones. Mm. We see that in warfare now. The Russians in the battle of Ukraine is actually using hypersonic drones to hit targets inside Ukraine. Uh, To be hypersonic, you have to go faster than Mach 5. Anything faster than five times the speed of sound is called hypersonic. And so the Russians are now fielding hypersonic drones in warfare. But you see, this is something just in the last few months. These sightings, they go back decades into the past with objects executing these gyrations decades ago. And that's why you have to take them seriously. So the Commander David Fravor event that we talked about off the Nimitz, that was 2004. Do we have an accurate understanding about military capability in terms of like drones and propulsion systems from 2004? Or are there things that are classified that we are not going to have access to? Like, is it possible that, you know, 18 years ago, they had the capability to have a vehicle or a drone move this way, that just that information has just not been released? Well, two years ago, the United States military admitted that it stopped working on these hypersonic drones. Why? They're unstable. They zigzag. And that's why the Russians have put a premium on this technology to evade our Star Wars program. The Russians wanted a rocket that can maneuver and therefore outwit a stationary Star Wars system designed to shoot down these drones. Right. So that's why the Russians have put a priority on this, and they've now fielding in warfare. We actually see them as a military weapon. Two years ago, the United States military stopped its program. They're too unstable. They, they were not reliable, and it was not worth the amount of money to put into it because the military was invested in the Star Wars program, not the anti-Star Wars program. Mm. But because Vladimir Putin announced the hypersonic drones, then the United States military said, oops, nope, we have to get into the game too. So now the United States is also working on hypersonic drones as well as the Chinese. So the Chinese, the Russians, and the Americans are all working on these things. But you can see how primitive they are. We're talking about objects that defy the known laws of aerodynamics with a technology beyond what we have today. And so that's why people are scratching their heads. Whose are these things if they're not the Chinese, the Russians, or the United States? So one of the main points of contention is the lack of visible propulsion method, right? There's no – essentially, 
There's no heat signature. There's nothing that we understand to be present that normally exists when something is going at a tremendous rate of speed. That's right. Not only that, these objects create no sonic booms. When you exceed the sound barrier, uh, you create a gigantic boom that is then shatters windows and can be heard miles around. These objects can effortlessly uh, break the sound barrier and not create a sonic boom. And they don't create any exhaust. Uh, we don't see any exhaust trail from these objects. So either they're an optical illusion of some sort, or they have a set of laws of physics beyond what we, what, what we can muster. Now, if they are a optical illusion, um, if an object were to move in front of your eyes, traveling at a very slow velocity, but you don't know how far they are away, you may think that object is very far away from you, traveling at enormous velocities. So a weather balloon drifting in front of your eyes can simulate an object traveling at hypersonic velocities if you think that weather balloon is far away from you. Hmm. So how do you tell the difference? Well, you look at wind patterns. It turns out that many of these sightings, these objects defy the direction of the wind. If they are weather balloons that you confuse with a flying saucer, uh, then they would be moving with the direction of the wind. But these objects do not do that. These objects can go against the direction of the wind. Not only that, but we have multiple sightings. If an object is very, very far away, I mean, if an object is close to you, but you think it's far away, then, it, then it's traveling at an enormous velocity while it's actually just drifting in front of your eyes. How do you tell the difference? By having multiple sensors, radar, infrared sensors, visual sighting. Then you can tell how far this object is away from you, and then you can say that, nope, it's an optical illusion. Well, we do that now. We have multiple sightings of these objects. By radar, we know how the velocity, the distance. Each time, it comes out to be real. And so that's why we're scratching our heads. Who has this capability? And the answer is, we don't know. Is there anything that's theoretical that you're aware of that could be applied, like some from some other planet or some other galaxy or whatever, that something that maybe we have theorized that could be responsible for the way these things are able to move? Well, you know, when I talk to my friends who are physicists like myself about these things, they sort of like laugh, giggle, their eyes roll up to the heavens, and they say something very simple, that a rocket using conventional means would take 70,000 years to reach us from the nearest star. Therefore, these objects cannot exist. 70,000 years for a Saturn rocket traveling at 25,000 miles per hour to go from a nearest star to the planet Earth. That's why most scientists disregard these sightings because they defy the laws of, of Einstein. But isn't that kind of silly? Isn't that kind of like saying, like, you can't, you know how long it would take you to get a horse from Los Angeles to Sydney, Australia? Isn't that kind of like saying that? Exactly. And that's why I say that that assumes that these aliens or whatever are maybe a hundred years more advanced than us. But open your mind to the possibility that they are a thousand years more advanced than us. A thousand years is nothing compared to the age of the universe. Right. The universe is about 13, uh, uh, 13 billion plus years old. That's how the age of the universe. And so the age of a civilization just a few thousand years ahead of us, 
that is just a blink of an eye to the universe itself. And once you go to higher energies, the laws of physics begin to break down. The laws of Einstein and the laws of the quantum theory break down at something called the Planck energy. Why is that important? That's what I do for a living. I work mm. on something called string theory, which lives at the Planck energy. The Planck energy is 10 to the 19 billion electron volts. That is a quadrillion times more powerful than our most powerful atom smasher outside Geneva, Switzerland. Any civilization that could harness the Planck energy would be able to become masters of space and time. Space and time, as we know it, become unstable at the Planck energy, which is far beyond anything that we can muster here on the planet Earth. So, we physicists theorize, how advanced do you have to be to access the Planck energy? Well, we rank them. The Kardashev scale says that there could be type 1, type 2, or type 3 civilizations. A type 1 civilization is maybe 100 years more advanced than us to maybe 1,000 years, sort of like Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon. Mm. They control the weather, volcanoes, earthquakes, anything planetary they control. That's type 1. Then there's type 2. Type 2 is stellar. They harness the power of an entire star, like Star Trek. Star Trek would be a typical type 2 civilization where they manipulate entire stars. Then there's type 3. Type 3 is galactic. They roam the galactic space lanes. They play with black holes like like uh, the Empire of uh, the Star Wars series would be a typical type 3 civilization. Then the next question is, what type do you have to be to harness the Planck energy? The energy at which space and time become unstable, where wormholes may develop, gateways through space and time, portals through empty space. You have to be type 2 or most likely type 3. Then the next question is, how long will it take before you become type 3? Well, we are maybe a 100 years away from being type 1. We're maybe a few thousand years from being from type 2. And we're maybe a 100,000 years being from being type 3. Hmm. And 100,000 years is nothing, nothing on a galactic scale. The age of the universe is, as I said, over 13 billion years old. And so once a civilization reaches the Planck energy, that is a type 3 civilization, space and time become your playground. 